Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast featuring feminist thriller writers in conversation about women who don't give a damn if you like them. I'm Kristen LaPianca, and I'm here with Lane Fargo. Hello. And our very special guest today, Sarah Gran. Hi, guys. We are so excited to have you here. Um, Sarah is the author of eight novels, including the Claire DeWitt series and the forthcoming book of The Most Precious Substance. She's also a screenwriter and a writer and producer for television. Previously, she worked in bookstores and sold rare books, originally from Brooklyn, New York. She now lives in Los Angeles. That bio, I feel like, is so insufficient as to how incredible your work is, Sarah. I'm just going to go right out and say it. (laughs) That's very kind. I will add that to my bio. We both have devoured the book of the most precious substance, and we are super excited to talk about it. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this book? Sure. Um, I realized this morning while I was thinking about this podcast, this is my first podcast for the book, and I have yet to sort of formulate my two-line elevator pitch of what the book is, but I will try. It is about a woman who is a rare book dealer. She used to be a novelist. Her husband got very sick, and she had to sort of give that up to take care of him. And then she gets a lead on a rare book that is about all kinds of magic, including sex magic, and um, has the opportunity to go after it with a guy she likes. So she does. I remember reading uh, the description of this book like when your publicist sent it to us, like the letter that came with it. And I, my jaw was just dropping as I was reading this. I was like, okay, she's like a rare book dealer. Wait, sex magic? Wait, erotic thriller? <laughs> Wait, like it was just everything. It was like somebody had written the book that I didn't know that I wanted. And that was the only thing I could think about. And I read it in like a day. I just, I oh, love this book you. so much. It's incredible. Oh yeah. It's just, it's so compelling and so fun and entertaining too, which like we need so much right now. Yes. That was very much the goal. You know, I like reading, um, I write dark stuff, but I don't always read really dark stuff. And this book does have some dark elements to it to be sure. But I wanted to write like, like a thriller that was fun and that was sexy, but that was also well-written and not utterly lacking in depth. Like what would I want to read if I got a day off to sit by the pool, which I haven't had in like a year. But (laughs) (laughs) but if, if hypothetically I had a weekend off and I was in Caesar's palace and could sit by the pool all weekend, 
what would I want to read? So, you know, they say, write the book you want to read. And in this case, I think it worked out nicely. That was exactly what I wanted to read. That's what we wanted to read too. Yes. It it honestly reminded me in this weird way of those like globe trotting sort of airport thrillers. Well, we like jokingly call them dad thrillers sometimes. Absolutely. (laughs) Like the Da Vinci Code and things like that, where it's this incredible, like high high speed propulsive adventure but then like with this book it's like you get all of that plus it's incredibly well written it's so sexy like there's so much going on as well like in addition to the globetrotting adventure but it was just such an escape to read this and right. think about traveling the world and like being somewhere that's not my condo you know? <laughs> yeah the 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 quest element is so fun the idea of like you know characters on a mission to locate something I feel like there used to be a ton of novels in like the Da Vinci Code vein like that. And that's kind of a thing that's fallen by the wayside a little bit. So I'm really happy to see that back because it's really fun. You know, that was definitely a big part of my thinking when I wrote it is everything you guys just said. What are these elements that I like in popular fiction, which is not really the genre I've worked in before. What are the elements that I like in that and how do I make them my own, you know, and what is lacking? And also I'm quite a bit older than you guys. And in the 90s, books like this where there's a female protagonist and there's a lot of sex, and especially if it's an older woman who's sort of reawakening to just, you know, the beauties of sex and the wonder of it. That was kind of a little genre. And those books sold really well and were really popular. And they were written by literary writers. There was uh, Mary Gordon's book, Spending, Josephine Hart's books. It was sort of this little trend that um, apparently always stuck with me. I love to bring that trend back and just erotic thrillers in general. I think like in the eighties and nineties, that was such a thing. And then it kind of went away and I, I don't know, like I have a lot of sex in my books, although not as much as people, it's like, there's so little sex in most thrillers that people, if you have like any people kind of pick up on it and you get known as this like sex writer. I'm always getting asked to do panels on sex and crime writing and all this, oh, wow. this stuff, even though there's not that much sex in my books, but I would love to see this become more of a, a genre again. Cause I feel like we didn't, see enough variety in it back in the day it's like I want to see all sorts of marginalized authors like everybody writing yes. their version of the erotic thriller like that would be so fantastic yes yes I am yeah. so here for that and there is a huge like popular African-American fiction tradition of these erotic thrillers when I worked at a bookstore in the 90s where we had again all my stories go back to the 90s you will find out sadly <laughs> <laughs> it was a great era yeah well, we had a huge African-American clientele and we were importing books from England because the publishing industry was sort of just catching up you know to to, to the fact that people who are not white read books which you know you want to go without saying but um and we would import these erotic thrillers from England and sell just cartons of them oh cool So there is this really wonderful, interesting history there as well. And the number one thing I hear, you know, I work in Hollywood, and the number one thing I hear from people outside of Hollywood is why can't we have erotic thrillers anymore? Why can't we make movies like basically like Fatal Attraction? And I'm always trying um, with little success so far to get those rolling in Hollywood. Yeah, there's a real like lack of just good old fashioned thrillers in movies. Like whenever you'll come across one, it's like, Ooh, this is like, this is that exact kind of movie that I want. But it's like, there's, you know, off so often like a science fiction angle in movies now, or like the pure thriller of, you know, bad, bad people behaving badly. Uh, that's like, like kind of weird absence, like a black hole. We need more movies like that. It is really weird. It's funny. I'm working on a project that's sort of related to this right now. And that's what I keep telling everyone. And 
people want to understandably make everything political. And that's one reason why mm -hmm. these movies fell by the wayside is because people felt like they were anti-feminist. In the 90s, there was a big feminist movement against movies like Basic Instinct was a huge mm -hmm. one. Um, because people felt like it was portraying women in a bad light, making women, especially queer women, look like they're murderers. And my defense is everyone in these stories are horrible. I, yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> I'm working on a project that's in that vein now. And someone was sort of like, oh, well, you want this to be about female empowerment, right? And I'm like, God, no, these are all terrible <laughs> people. We don't want them empowered at all. We want them all disempowered and to go away. They're all really, really bad. There's no feminist angle to be had in that other than, you know, women producing movies and making movies, but within the story itself, they're all terrible people. And we talk about that a lot on the show, how, you know, we can have narratives about women and anybody behaving badly and we can enjoy that and get satisfaction out of it as a viewer or reader, but it doesn't mean we're endorsing their behavior and it doesn't mean that it's feminist and it shouldn't have to be like as women, right. we shouldn't have to write feminist texts it should just be like interesting stories about interesting people even if they're terrible the feminism comes in in our ability to do that not in necessarily the content of the story which i don't know why you know people can get hung up on the idea that if you write it it's a, a tacit endorsement of the behavior like it's it's fiction it's a story we made it up completely mm -hmm. made up um, that idea is very out of fashion now, but I agree 100%. <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah. <laughs> be taken literally. I think there are metaphors for different parts of our personality and different cultural currents and different spiritual forces that work at our lives. So if you have a story with a bad woman, not only are you not saying all women are bad, but also it's not about a literal woman. It is about perhaps a feminine part of your psyche, you know, that, that you have personified and brought to life on the page. I think these things are a lot more complicated, even if you look at sort of base entertainment, you know, stuff that's really is written to sort of be an airport book, which God bless, because that's its own fucking skill. Even in those books have a, a symbolic resonance that I think is greater than the literal resonance. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I would love to ask you about kind of a theme in your work, which is like books within books. So we have that in <laughs> the book of the most precious substance, of course. And then uh, in the Claire DeWitt series, you have the the two different books within books. You have the Jacques Solette uh, manual on being a detective. And you also have uh, the Cynthia Silverton teen detective stories. So it's sort of like these books exist in the world of the characters as extremely formative elements uh, and they drive the plot. And it's like, you somehow managed to bring all of these like books that don't actually exist to life on the page. It's, it's incredible. Um, but what, what's behind the, the motivation to do that? I'm not entirely sure why it's something I keep coming back to other than my own fascination with books it has always had this sort of magical quality to me. Um, and I was very fortunate. My parents were, you know, batshit crazy, but they were also <laughs> very intelligent, educated, literate people. And I grew up in a house full of books. And I think that's a good combination because there was no sense of books in my house as these are the right books to read. You know, my mother had graduated from college with a degree in French literature, and sometimes she would read highbrow stuff. And sometimes she wanted to read a celebrity biography, you know? And my father would sometimes read, again, highbrow literary fiction, but he also really loved mysteries. And he would go to a secondhand shop and buy a giant stack of mysteries to read on the subway. So I grew up with books both being a huge part of my life, but also sort of decontextualized from the place where they usually are for, you know, privileged people like myself, where they occupy this sort of 
more conformist spot in, in, in the culture. So I think I was really lucky in that regard. And I think it just really stuck with me that books are this sort of magical, I don't know quite what it is. I feel like if I knew exactly what it is, I wouldn't keep writing about it. (laughs) 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 These things, because there is something sort of not understood there, perhaps. So I do know why I have this obsession with books in general. And of course, I have worked in the book business on and off my whole adult life in one way or another, but why as a fictional topic, I keep coming back to that. I'm not entirely sure. Like they could have been looking for a magic, I don't know, wand, a magic, something else, but I'm not quite sure why I had, it always has to be a book. And now you're publishing your own books. So the book of the most precious substance is going to be the first release for Dreamland Books, your new independent publishing company. Um, What made you decide to, to go that route? It was something I've always wanted to do, always. And just, you know, in reference to what I just said, just like having a life where books have always been a really big part of it, working in bookstores. I'm not a big rare book collector in terms of expensive rare books. I'm a big book collector in terms of uh, what's this batshit crazy paperback I saw at the Salvation Army that I will never (laughs) find again if I don't buy it now. (laughs) Astral projection or vegan cooking or whatever, you know, whatever the topic is. So that had always kind of been the plan is to someday start my own publishing company and whether it stays really small and I just publish my own stuff or whether it expands and I hope to publish other people's works as well, but I definitely have to work some kinks out before I get there. Um, And it's been really wonderful. I mean, working with publishers has sort of gotten to be more and more, there's a lot of wonderful things about working with our, our big beloved corporate publishing entities. And there's a lot of great people in those companies. But I've been doing this for 20 years and every year you've seen, it's not that there aren't great people who are doing great jobs, but every year the bottom has gotten lower and lower and now there is no bottom to the point where people think it's just acceptable to not return phone calls. Have a 12 year old <laughs> copy edit. My my neighbor's kid decided to design the cover. I'm making that shit up obviously, but that seems like a level <laughs> of professionalism sometimes. So having always wanted to do this, I'm also incredibly vain. I'm an incredibly vain person. And so I wanted to start my publishing company with a book that I obviously could have gotten published at a big publisher, you know, to, to protect my pride and my uh, highly overinflated ego. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I was, as I was reading it, I was thinking like, I can imagine a lot of publishers not just not knowing what to do with this book. Like they would want to publish it because it's brilliant, but they would just have no idea how to market it or like what to, because they're, they're so narrow and their assessment of like who the audience is or what people are interested in or what sells. And um, I don't know. It's fascinating to be having this conversation uh, on the day that the DOJ just released mm-hmm. their. Yes. <laughs> Very timely. <laughs> what do you guys think about that? Tell me your opinions. I'm curious. Um, I, I think it's a good thing for the merger to not go through, but I wonder where that will leave Simon and Schuster. And I think yeah. Penguin Random House is just going to keep like eating everything up no matter what the DOJ does. But I don't know. I say that as a Simon and Schuster author currently. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been interesting to watch this unfold and I don't know where it's going to land. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that some of the, like the rationale behind the merger was to uh, like serve as a counterpoint to Amazon while at the same time they want to become better partners to Amazon. So it's just sort of like, what exactly is the motivation here? And, you know, for as, as much grief as Amazon does get in a lot of ways, um, they do treat their authors better than some of the traditional publishers do in, in certain cases. 
I have absolutely heard that, that, you know, as much as it's a problem, you know, for me working with the publishing arm of Amazon, I have worked with Audible, but working with the publishing arm would be out of the question because independent bookstores won't carry their books. And I totally understand why, Mm -hmm. but I can't, you know, miss out on that market altogether. But um, I think that the, you know, Amazon certainly have its evils, but I think they've become sort of the whipping boy for the whole publishing industry. And we need to look a little bit more at corporate publishers and how they're shaping the market and how they're shaping fiction and, you know what they're up to as well. Yeah. Amazon becomes a very convenient scapegoat for everyone's bad behavior, I think. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. And it's not, not to excuse any of their bad behavior, but just to say, right. uh-huh. there's a lot of unreturned phone calls. I'm still waiting for some callbacks from my last book I published with Simon and Schuster in 2018. Maybe they'll return my <laughs> phone call this week. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Maybe the day. I will sit and look at my phone for the rest of the day, hoping hoping to get those calls returned. Um, and I have heard treat their authors a little bit more respectfully, and and that the advances are very generous. I did a book with Audible, and I had really mixed feelings about it because you know you're locked. If you do an Audible original, you are locked into that ecosystem. It will never be for sale anywhere else. Although I did get to retain the print rights, so I can do it as a print book, which I will someday. I had really mixed feelings about that, you know, just to give this creative work entirely to this giant behemoth of a company. But everyone I worked with was lovely, and I got a fucking ridiculous amount of money, way more than I would have gotten with someone else, way more than I would have gotten publishing it as a book with a regular publisher. So I think it's complicated. Um, and one reason why I'm starting my own company is to sort of get out of that world of complications and you know, it's mine. I own the, you know, as you guys know, when you publish a book with a big publisher, you don't technically give up your copyright, but in reality, they have the right to publish it in English for the life of the copyright, which is 75 years after your death. Um, mm-hmm. I did not want to give that up again. Yeah, I'm working with Audible right now on a couple things too, and I have a lot of conflicting emotions where it's like, I think Amazon's kind of evil, but they're like paying my mortgage right now because it is way more money than I've gotten from traditional publishing um, for both of the projects that I'm doing with them. And it's been really interesting. Like one of the ones that I'm working on currently is a more narrative podcast kind of thing, like like your Project Marigold's. Mm -hmm. Um, with multiple actors and everything and it's so it's like fun it's very freeing to experiment with that and they seem really supportive of like wanting you to experiment and not just do the same thing that's been released over and over and over again and like I don't I'm not sure what the marketing will be like but we'll we'll find out when I get to that stage but so far it's been a really great experience it's really good and the marketing is sort of a non-issue because it's just in their own ecosystem so it's just true. if you're having concerns about that it just automatically kind of gets on the new release thing and then they will bring it back to life seasonally. I don't know. They've been really great to work with. Although, like I said, I have the same mixed feelings you do. But a lot of mm-hmm. those problems are just taken care of. The PR and the marketing, they just don't really care because it's all within one ecosystem. So I was a little surprised when I did Marigold with them. There was no press, really, um, hmm. because it's not needed. They have people who will just download it. Right. That's all they care about. They already have their customers. It's a That's true. model. And if they want you to see something, if you're like in the Amazon ecosystem at all, if you're an Audible consumer or just like on the website shopping, like if they want you to see something, you will see it. And you it will, will see it. <laughs> it will be everywhere. It will yes. haunt yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just did a thing for them. It's like a guest curation thing where I put a list of my um, favorite books that are in the system. They do like a little guest post about it. So I have a little thing up there that just went up yesterday. Oh, cool. I and mean, I have to say one of the things that made me such a huge fan of yours besides your 
your books was this newsletter that you wrote uh, a couple years ago, which like several friends forwarded to me where you were basically talking about everything that's wrong with the publishing industry. And I think at that time you were still just considering starting your, your publishing company. I think you mentioned that in the email, but it always sticks in my head. You said something in this email about how like no one knows what will sell at Costco, but they're always trying <laughs> to yeah. figure it out. They're trying to like make everything as bland as possible and as safe as possible. And that's not even what readers want necessarily they have no idea what readers want they're just trying to like stand off the edges and make everything as nice and uncontroversial as possible and like how boring is that as a, a writer it just like cuts you off and how knees. boring is it as a reader I mean yeah the reason like I said you know one of my motivations for writing this book was writing what I wanted to read because there's you know I like reading I mean the word trashy with love I'm gonna say I like reading trashy stuff sometimes and I don't mean that to be disparaging. I know it's a sort of overtly disparaging term, but like an airport book is another word, a by the pool book. Just something whose job is to be entertaining. Their job is not to address in an overt way, although I think these things do address it in a sort of subconscious way. I think genre fiction has great potential in that regard. But overtly, they are not about the meaning of life. They are not about the big questions of life. They are about getting from point A to B in an entertaining way. And I can't really find those books very often anymore. And I feel like, and maybe it's just me getting persnickety as I get older, which is definitely, you know, a huge factor. I'm 50 years old and I am fucking cranky as hell most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I feel like when I was young, if I just wanted a light read for a day off, I could go to a bookstore, pick up something on the bestseller list, and it would have um, a sort of basic understanding of what it takes to structure a novel in an entertaining, can't quite put it down way. And also have enough sort of interesting characters and local color. A lot of those books were about where they were set. They were about, mm -hmm. like, so it was like a thriller in New Orleans, a thriller in San Francisco. And you'd go to all these locations in San Francisco and there was like a travel element to it. And I feel like those books have gotten less competent and less fun, which do not have to go together. Because I read sometimes old pulp fiction from the 50s and a lot of it is like, someone wrote it on a meth binge in a month, you know, or they didn't call it meth back then. They just called it speed, but, but on an amphetamine binge in a month. And, um, but there's fun in them, there's quirkiness in them. So it hits all the genre points. It hits whatever, you know, those are more detective than thrillers. It hits all those marks you want in a detective novel, but there's also a quirkiness and an idiosyncratic quality that comes through that you can really say, Oh, this is this author. This is that author. Their obsessions come to the fore. And, um, yeah, those seem to get sanded out very often in publishing now. And I just, back to that newsletter, the response that I got for that, because I don't have a huge subscription to my newsletter, but I heard from so many people in the publishing world, so many authors about that thing that I wrote in the newsletter when I was just sort of venting my frustrations with publishing and my sort of not being sure what to do next. I heard so many fucking horror stories from people. I published 12 books with this publisher. They don't return my phone calls. They did no publicity. Should I stay with them? I'm like, um, fuck no, you should not. Like you should <laughs> anything other than that. It's not going to change. It's except to get worse. Yeah. It's like people, like when you're an aspiring writer, there's this idea of like, you know, oh, once I get published, like that's, that's the, that's the goal. Once that happens, I've succeeded. And it's like, no, that's just sort of like you've crossed over into uh, like the next level and everything is increasingly more complicated and uh, there's more intense periods of waiting and just everything is more difficult and more opaque. Uh, it's not like I, I made it. <laughs> no, not quite. 
Yeah. I mean, I was lucky because I did have, you know, some really good PR behind some of my books in the past and some I've had absolutely no PR behind them, but they've caught on anyway. So I've been really lucky. So I understand it's not as easy for everyone to just jump off and do their own thing as it was for me that I've already gotten the benefits of traditional publishing for, you know, I call it six and a half books because <laughs> the audiobook is half a book. <laughs> Seven and a half, I lose track. But, um, oh, that it was easier for me to do that than some people, but a lot of people don't understand. Publishers are asking us authors to do more and more all the time. So yes. one response, and, and on the whole, the response to what I'm doing has been overwhelmingly positive, but there have been a couple people like, do you want to do everything yourself? And it's like, I was already doing everything myself. I was already writing all my own copy. I've never not written my own copy for, um, you know, the dust jacket, the PR stuff, yeah. and everything. We're professional writers and they're not. So it's not about them being lazy or bad people. It's just that obviously if you're a writer, you can do a better job writing your jacket flap copy and stuff like that, you know? Um, and now they expect you to do a big social media push for your books. And now a lot of times you're booking your own events. A lot of time you're using your own connections, um, getting your own blurbs. And after a while, it's like, well, since I enjoy the control aspect, not everyone does, but I enjoy making my own mistakes. I'd rather fuck it all up myself than have someone else do it. It just made more sense to do the whole thing myself. Yeah. Plus with having, having that complete responsibility, uh, it's like, you know, you are already doing all of that. But now, like, you're not doing it for a tiny royalty percentage. It's all for you. And you yeah. can see the data on, like, what's yes. performing and what's not. They don't like to tell us anything. <laughs> it's all a mystery. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that was another big thing, which I've kind of written and spoken about a lot, is, like, the culture. I have these two careers that I, you know, try to kind of give equal parts of my life, even though 90% of my money comes from Hollywood. But about 50% of my life is still books. God help me. I still like them much better than TV or film, <laughs> even though it's not profitable. Um and there is a real difference in how much you're expected to participate in the process. And that was another reason why, and this isn't an indictment of publishing because some authors are happy not to sort of see how the sausage is made and get into all that stuff. But for me, that's just not my personality. And also the more I work in TV and then you produce more and more, the more you're a writer in Hollywood, especially in television, you play a really active role in production. And I couldn't go back from that to people saying advertising doesn't work. Of course, advertising fucking works, you know? Or, or, or these other sort of obscure things. No one knows the Costco thing, you know, all of this stuff where you're not really a full participant in the conversation and there's a sort of infantilization. Um, but some people don't see it as infantilization, of course. I just want to make sure I'm not being accusatory. Some people see it as like a great burden lifted from them that they don't have to sit around the marketing meetings. I want to be in every marketing meeting. I want to be in every cover design meeting. I want to create the whole package myself. Yeah, I feel the same way. I really love that side of, the business like I want to be let in on it as much as possible and the large publishers are not okay with that a lot of the time they think that you're being difficult or trying to take control where like you shouldn't have control and often for me it's like I just want to know what's going on I just want to be informed and even that they're like no just just sit back and <laughs> write the book and shut up and like that right. does not work for me and I think it doesn't work for a lot of writers and it's not even you know so much a matter of control just as a matter of like being included in like what's actually going on uh, yeah. I find it so bizarre how hard it is to find out about sales numbers. Like, you know, publishing is like, okay, we'll send you these statements twice a year and you definitely can't understand them, but we'll send them to you. And if you ask any questions, we'll tell you, we don't know. Uh, so yeah. it's, you know, it's very strange. 
And so much is unknown back to that, you know, newsletter topic again, no one knows what's going to be a big hit. No one knows yep. what's going to sell in Costco. So, you know, if you're working, if I'm working with my printers, I'm not going to argue with them about printing techniques. It's a factual thing. There is no arguing about the print techniques because they know and I do not know the best way to print a book, although I'm doing print on demand for this book. So God help me, I will not have those conversations yet. But, um, but with publishing, a lot of the marketing, a lot of the publicity, a lot of the packaging, a lot of the covers and stuff is very subjective. And, um, you know, and like I said, some people like having those decisions taken out of their hands. My personality lends me to feel that uh, as frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I think they, like Kristen was saying, it's like you when you're an aspiring writer, when, once you get published, you think that's the promised land and you've made it. And they kind of weaponize that against the, <laughs> against us. It's like, yep. oh, you should just be lucky to be here. Right. Like, it just, I, I don't know. It's, I, we're, we're very frustrated with the publishing industry around here as well. I think <laughs> the pandemic has brought this out. And it's getting worse. I don't know how many books you guys have published or how long you're doing this, but again, I've been doing this for 20 years and I have seen things really change. Um, and they don't, you don't even get the really fancy lunches anymore. You know, you just <laughs> get the really expensive lunches and like, and then you're like, why the fuck did we spend $200 on lunch that we could have put into publicity for my book? But at least you got right. your really fancy lunches with oysters and seafood and whatnot. And now you don't even get that as far as I can. <laughs> No, I got like one lunch. It was like moderately fancy, but not that expensive. <laughs> I got a sandwich in my last publishing deal. <laughs> I got a drink and I'm pretty sure my editor just paid for it herself. I don't think it was on behalf of the publisher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there used to be this sort of glamour associated with that whole world. And that's been another big change is it's just not as much fun as it used to be. I would love to ask about sort of the other theme of like the occult and divination that runs through your books. You've got um, astrology and tarot in Saturn's return to New York, the whole idea of demon exorcism and come closer um, in the Claire DeWitt series. Claire is always uh, casting I Ching, which I think is a really interesting choice. What about that intrigues you? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Everything about it intrigues me. I think this stuff, first of all, as a writer, it's just sort of a convenient plot point to constantly bring in because once you bring in that element, you open so many doors as to what you could do as a writer. Mm -hmm. so if you're not a strictly materialist person, which I am obviously not, your your options of what kind of elements you can bring into play in a story, things like fate and magic and um, um, I guess that's about, I guess there is no third thing. <laughs> fate and you can bring fate and magic into a work. You know, you can just open a million doors in terms of plot, character, story, what you can do. And I'm fascinated by that stuff. I always have been. You know, when I was a kid, um, speaking of bookstores and books as sacred objects, um, I grew up near the community bookstore in Brooklyn. And then I also spent a lot of time in upstate New York. And there was a bookstore that I think is still there in a small town called Chatham in upstate New York. And again, my, you know, I was so blessed that my parents were very into books and they were something they were willing to spend money on for themselves and for me. And we would go to the bookstore and pick things out. And they had these books in the seventies that were like, not strictly a cult, but it was more like in the universe of the paranormal, the unknown for kids. So it was like Bigfoot, Bermuda Triangle, <laughs> all these like the hot topics of the seventies, um, um, you know, mystery scene unsolved mysteries the tv show was like probably the, the fundamental influence on my entire life but going to get these books in the bookstore and then you would open it and 
no one in my universe talked about these things. No one I knew in real life was interested in UFOs and Bigfoot and witchcraft. And they had one of those Time Life series advertised on TV. I've bought a couple of the volumes over the years because I'm an adult and can buy whatever I want now. That's the best <laughs> thing about getting old. You can buy all the ridiculous things you didn't get in childhood. Yes. Yeah. And it's called something like Mysteries of the Unexplained. Do you guys know this series? It's like a Time Life fake leather bound series. No, but I, I need to know about it. You do need to know about <laughs> it. Um, and, and the idea that you could sort of... Uh, get at these things in life that no one else I knew was interested in. If they were interested in it, it was only to the degree that they thought it was fraudulent um, and thought it was all sort of a big con. And the idea that you could get into a book and get this stuff really stuck with me, that you could go to the bookstore and buy something and find out if Bigfoot was real. Um, <laughs> I, I may have been misled on that one, but. <laughs> the eternal debate. The eternal debate. Exactly. When I was a kid, I think I was in like, fifth or sixth grade and I remember um I got in I went to a Catholic school and I got in trouble because I wanted to do a science report about ESP and oh my, my teacher gosh. was like so horrified it's <laughs> <laughs> heartbreaking that they did yeah. not encourage your your interest in that they did not they were like no write about geckos I was like okay yeah <laughs> can I read about geckos <laughs> I'm still very interested in that stuff. And, you know, there are scientists who really probe the science of that. And I think science is a good way of knowing the world. It's not the only way of knowing the world. You will never scientifically prove ghosts. However, almost everyone on earth, if you ask them, even the people who seem the most materialist, the most scientific, they'll be like, no, of course I don't believe in ghosts. But this one time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Most everyone has experiences with these things. But there is also a lot of really interesting Scientific research and Rupert Sheldrake in particular, when you say ESP in a science report on that, Rupert Sheldrake, who is the sort of master of that universe, comes to mind right away, who has done tons of scientific research into ESP. One of his famous books is called Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, and Dogs Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. That's kind of what he found <laughs> out. <laughs> That's very true. My dog, it's like he can tell time all of a sudden. And when my partner's work schedule changes, he like adjusts yeah. really quickly to it. Like they just, they do, they sense it. Wow. <laughs> That's what Sheldrake did. I, I might be getting, I'm not necessarily getting this quite right. So everyone should go read his book and not just take my word for it. I think what they did in the study was they had people adjust their time coming home without telling anyone in the household. And the animals still somehow knew, no, he's not coming home at five. He's coming home at eight. <laughs> I love so it. I think there are forces in the world that we do not understand. Some of them obviously can be studied scientifically, and some of them I think cannot. They do not lend themselves to being understood. There's another really great book, which I actually have not read the whole thing. It's massive, but I've read parts of it, and someday I will read the whole damn thing. Called What's it called? I think it's called The Trickster and the Paranormal. The Paranormalist mm. Trickster, something like that. I will I will get the correct name of the book to you guys because I think you would enjoy it. Like I said, it's huge, so I sort of just read a chapter now and then when I have some free time. And it is about how a lot of these experiences do not lend themselves to being proven. They seem to have a tricksterish quality in and of themselves that resist being codified, studied, made into a statistic. Interesting. That sounds fascinating. I feel like that lends itself really well to... Um, like mystery fiction because you know a detective's intuition uh, everyone accepts everyone accepts intuition to some extent as like yes this is real but like 
you know, at what point does it border on the the paranormal and the metaphysical and the completely inexplainable? But it's like, you know, all detectives rely on their intuition to some degree. And so really ex- exploring that as a specific element of the story, I think is a really cool way to sort of underline that. That's one of the reasons why detective stories are eternally fascinating to me. And no matter how no matter how many of them I read and no matter how many I write, I still come back to that because I think it is sort of the ultimate metaphor, symbolic structure of life itself, which is it's a big fucking mystery and you don't have much more to go on but clues and intuition about what to do next. And I think that's why that story has eternal appeal. The detective story itself is because of exactly what you just said. Yeah. Now I want to know what other strange and unusual books you read to do research for the book of the most precious substance <laughs> because <laughs> I am assuming I know you mentioned like Alistair Crowley and some things like that in there but yeah like what did your research shelf look like while you were working on this you know I didn't do a whole lot of research specific for this book because I've been into this shit for so long since, uh, okay. like, since <laughs> going as a little kid to the bookstore to get the Bermuda Triangle book so your whole life has been leading to this moment kind of yes <laughs> kind of yeah yeah <laughs> a little more research into sex magic and the form of sex magic in the book is wholly fictional that is not really like an established school of sex magic it is really a fictional innovation doesn't mean it doesn't work if anyone wants to try i have not but um (laughs) (laughs) not quite going that far but uh uh it's based on real stuff and it's kind of based on what crowley did there's a great um uh, what's her name? Her name is Catherine Ironwood, but it's spelled with a Y. It's like Y-R-O-N. It's spelled in some unusual name, but she has a shop and a publishing company called Lucky Mojo. I used to live near Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 And she has a bunch of websites that are just a font of useful information on sex magic. Um, and I would highly encourage anyone who wants to research it. To, she should be your go-to person on that. Um, she is probably I don't know about the world's authority but one of the world's authorities for sure on that topic I don't know her personally although I've been to her shop a bunch of times and you know and read a lot of her writing and of course Crowley you know was the big sex magic guy and then I've done yoga on and off for about 30 years now which I can't fucking believe how old I am when I say that out loud but um (laughs) and you know tantric sex there's a popular version of tantric sex which is just fucking for a really long time. And I'm sure that's great, but that's not really like part of any older spiritual tradition when you just like fuck and don't have an orgasm for hours. It's great, but that's not, it's more Taoist than um, um, tantric, but Taoism and, and tantra do have these really interesting ways of looking at sex as a magical operation that are perhaps a bit more subtle and a bit more interesting than the popularized version, which again is probably quite good and not to knock it. Love it. I'm actually curious, Sarah, if you could tell us a little bit about your writing process. Does it kind of stay the same from book to book or change a lot? Because your books are so, so different. Like They all just really have their own style and personality. And just curious if your process stays the same or if you change it up a lot. Um, I change it up a lot because my life changes a lot. Um, not because of any desire to make improvements or to make adjustments. But, you know, you have times when you have a lot of free time in life. And you can just spend days and days and days writing. And then you have times when you just kind of have to squeeze that right in and whenever you can. And it's funny because I was, I think I was talking about this in therapy last week, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> this book, I honestly don't remember writing most of it. 
Um, a big part of the inspiration for the book is that my parents were very ill. They have since passed, but I was in a sort of caregiving situation a lot. My husband is, has health problems as well. And so I had to sort of squeeze writing this book in, in between taking care of people and also doing the stuff I do to make money and, and doing all the publication stuff for my other book. And oddly enough, I, I don't have much of a recollection of like how and when I wrote it because it was a lot of it was on flights back and forth to New York City or staying up late one night to get a scene done. And it was frankly easier to write than my other books because I give myself a different set of challenges with each book, right? When you're when you've done this for a long time and you want to keep it interesting, you have to come up with, you know, new challenges for yourself. So with my detective books, I come up with these big structural challenges that are really actually fucking hard to, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of wrestling to get those Claire DeWitt books done because the structure has gotten really sort of big and overwhelming and it's a huge world that I've created for better or worse. But with this book, the sort of challenge that I set for myself was don't do that. <laughs> don't make it a big structural, innovative, experimental thing. Make it a very, very straightforward ABCD book have fun with the other stuff, but don't go to a complicated structure, go to an entertaining page turning thriller type structure. So that was very different for me. And it also ended up being just much easier. It's so interesting how each book has its own attitude. Like it's like each book has its own way of treating you as the writer. Uh, they just kind of get a mind of their own. Yeah. Yeah. It absolutely is a different relationship with yourself, with your work, and then eventually with your readers, with every book and not just in terms of what you're trying to do, but you don't know you were doing until you look back on it, you know, five or 10 years later. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. And um, do you want to tell us what you're working on now? If, unless it's all top secret. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's not top secret. It's just, I'm working on the next Claire DeWitt book and I'm working Yay. on novella. And now that I have my own, you know, publishing company, I can do whatever I want whenever I want, which kind of has reinvigorated my creative process is not, I'm working on a little novella, like I said, and it's been great to be like, eh, who would publish this? I will publish it. That's who will <laughs> publish it. So that is sort of, brought some some joy back into my writing process for sure i love that well we're very excited to read whatever you put out and we'll be looking forward to the novella and everything else thank you guys so much for the kind words and thank you so much for doing this interview this is really fun for me and i appreciate it That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe, and you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates, book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is unlikablefemalecharacters.com, and we're also on Instagram at unlikablefemalecharacters. Thanks for listening.